Hi, this is Andy with the Healthcare Insights Podcast from Northwest AHEC here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I have the pleasure to introduce um, a community leader, uh, motivational speaker, trainer, and columnist, Nigel Austin. Welcome, Nigel. Good morning, Andy. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, I'm glad you could be here. Now, you are currently the executive director at North Carolina Black Repertory, um, who produces the the uh, biannual um, National Black Theater Festival, which That's just right. happened this morning, or this summer <laughs> in Winston-Salem. <laughs> if it was this morning, I would be here, right? <laughs> which I've actually um, been in some readings in that. Couple, yeah, a, f- a few th- festivals ago, I was uh, happened to be bartending at downtown Thai restaurant, and one of the playwrights that came in and, and said, I, I need someone like you to read a part. And so he gave me a binder. This was about 1 a.m. And he said, you got to be back at 8 a.m. And, and know your lines. <laughs> so that was a bit of a challenge for me. But that's my experience with well, participating. You say that uh, a friend of mine who lives in Greensboro is a, has a um, uh, shoe shine parlor mm-hmm. and repairs shoes as well. So he was here and was set up in the um, Marriott, I was about to say the Adams Mark, that yeah, goes way that back, back, right, way <laughs> back. kind of like the Rose and Thistle as we talked about earlier today. But a similar story to yours is that uh, another person that I know who's from Louisville was here, uh, had a performance that was going on, but also had a reading, and started talking to him, had a shoe shine, and really liked his personality and thought he would fit, and he actually did the same thing Yeah, at this festival. Well, that, that's a great way for the community to get involved in right. something like that. It comes around. I wish it come around every summer, but uh, I guess two years uh, is probably... It's work. Yeah. yeah, it's a bit of work <laughs> yeah. to get that here. So, yeah, and you're also a Dale Carnegie trainer, and I want to talk about that some, and a former interim director of Forsyth County Department of Social Services. So, um, like I was telling you earlier, you know, we've you know, focus on health care, but health care means so much to right. so many different people. And right. part of that is the health of the community. And I've, I've been a big fan of yours for many years. And Thank we you. got to uh, formally meet in one of my workshops I did with Hands On Northwest, North Carolina, which I've mentioned several times on this podcast. And um, uh, just uh, seeing, following you on social media, your big social media influencer, I'd say, and, and just keeping up with some of the things you're doing to, um, you know, to relate it to healthcare topics is is one of the easy ways is the health of the community. And I think you do a great job of being a leader in that space and being a role model to many as far as um, developing their abilities as leaders in the community. Um, could you talk about some of the efforts that, that you have going on? I mean, I see pictures of you in schools for the little kids and in the colleges talking to the big kids and, and you know, in Carnegie training talking to the adults. And so you're involved at just about every level with that. Uh, in a number of ways. Um, where to begin with that? Um, one of my... Several years ago, about five years ago, uh, I was invited by a teacher uh, whose class I was in at uh, Diggs, and this has been, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago. And I love kids. That's just a central part of who I am, and and reading specifically. Um, Primarily, I believe that if I can get you to start reading, you will continue to read. It doesn't matter what you read or what you want to read. If you tell me you want to read... uh, George, or oh, the big red dog, I think it was. I couldn't believe when a student told me that once. I'm like, you're pulling my leg. 
That's not a big red dog. And sure <laughs> enough, it was. But long story short, she invited me to her church school, which is Ephesus Junior Academy. So it's a Seventh-day Adventist church. And wanted me to come over to speak. And the answer is yes. I'm available. I come to do it. The night before going, I was reading something about a star football player for the University of Georgia who had difficulty reading coming into college and sort of shied away from it. And he happened to be, let's say, at a Barnes and Nobles or Borders one night, and he, he ran into this woman. He's African-American, she's white. They started a conversation. In the process of the conversation, she was talking about a book club that she and some of her friends, all of whom were white women, had, and he asked if he could join. And she said, well, we're all women and we're all white. He said, well, can I join? She said, yes. And he talked about how that changed things for him. First of all, he read things that he probably would not have read before. It helped to improve his reading skill. So as I was reading, I had to start, why don't I start a book club at the school? I hadn't talked to them about it. I'm just going over to speak. So I made up my mind before going. I sent them a note and said, have each one of the kids to tell me uh, if they could read one book and I would purchase them for them, what would it be? have all of them to write it down. I'm going to buy one or two books. My plan was to buy a book for everyone. Mm -hmm. And there were only maybe 20, 22 students. So I went, I talked to the kids, I got their list. Said, I'll tell you what, we're going to start a book club. What do you think about that? So we're going to have a contest, and I want all of you to submit a name for the book club. And from that, I'll choose the name, and that person will also get a, a book. So they still don't know that everyone's getting a book. So I ordered all the books. I got uh, a list of about 12 or 13 names, posted them to Facebook, and I asked everyone to say, here's the situation, I explained it, uh, what should the book club be called? And so we ended up choosing, sorry, we're booked. <laughs> <clears throat> so I had a logo design, a friend of mine's graphic um, artist, worked in one seven state, I was working there at the time, um, had Hanes Brands to donate t-shirts. Uh, my wife attends church with someone whose husband has a screen printing business, and he screen printed them. So I went over, I uh, had the T-shirts, announced the winner, and I had books for everyone. That was five years ago. So every month during the school year for the last five years, I purchased books for all the kids in school. Now it's a small school. It's 20 to 25. So your point in terms of community and, and community health and being engaged and being involved, um, I can't tell you um, – they will tell you what it has meant to them, but it has probably meant more to me. One, from the excitement. So if I took you with me one day, which I might do, so I may call you now. Hey, anytime. And say, hey, come and go over with me and put you in the hot seat, as they call it, and they interview you and oh, ask I'd, you questions. I love that. And then I give them books. But to see the excitement on their faces when you come in because they know books are coming. Now, sometimes I just stop by <laughs> without a book. And occasionally I bring donuts, and so now they aren't sure, <laughs> are you just stopping by, or do you have donuts, or are there books, but the excitement. <clears throat> so that's that's been a common theme of mine, just uh, reading, whether it's going into high schools, whether it's talking in college. Uh, I work some, and you may be familiar with the Winston-Salem Fellows, I'm and not, Ned yeah. Erickson. Uh, as a matter of fact, he's someone you should have on your your program, and i give you his contact information when we finish. It's a great program. I think it's going into its fourth year this year, and so I've had the opportunity to 
meet with them to talk to the class coming in. So it would be somewhat similar to, for example, our leadership Winston-Salem. So it's an eight or nine month program. Uh, they've graduated from college, uh, determining what it is they want to do. Uh, it's spiritually based. Uh, they have host families who house them here. Uh, Ned works with employers throughout town uh, to get them employed while they're here. Mm-hmm. And they meet various people in the course of that. Uh, they have leader luncheons. Uh, I help uh, in leading um, a little short four to five week session at the end of the year with them. But I do the same thing for them. So when you came out to meet us at the car, I had a box of books that I gave my wife, which is a book for each one of them. So it's a common thing in terms of a part of who I am is just helping others to improve and get better uh, from where they are at this particular point. And that could be from writing the column. It could be from Dale Carnegie training. It could be going into the classroom to speak or giving a book or just sitting down and having a conversation with some of the fellows or others who call and say, Andy told me I should give you a call. And Okay, well, come <laughs> over and let's have a conversation. Well, that sounds great. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, giving back to the community is, is kind of what – uh, you know the meaning of life is you know right. once we've achieved a certain level it's time to give back and and literacy is so important and we you know I mentioned social determinants of health before we started and and that's one of our big drives for this year is to really steep that into all our programs that we right. do with healthcare professionals health careers and all the development that we do in that space um, and one of the primary drivers of social determinants is lack of health literacy mm-hmm. and part of that leads to just literacy itself mm-hmm. so I love that you're getting kids excited about reading because that's just gonna leapfrog them to a healthier life if, right. and hopefully financially rewarding in this market-based economy we live in and, right. and because reading is fundamental as we say and also that uh you know, having a common shared experiences is so rare these days, you know, with social media and Netflix and YouTube, everyone's got their own experience of what they've seen. And when we grew up, we just had three channels. <laughs> I mean, you're, you, you predate me a little bit, but little not, bit, not, yeah. not yeah. too much though. But, um, you know, you probably remember you had three choices on TV when you, when you watched and it went off around midnight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was a hard stop, but right. we all had the shared experience of meeting and talking about something that we shared together and books can do that too. in mm-hmm. that, in that book club. Mm-hmm. So, um, I've tried to get that you know ethos in my own children to say hey you know these are called classic books for a reason because it's it's something that binds people together uh, a shared experience if you will and it helps you to connect the dots you know there was there's a um, motivational speaker writer uh, i think he's deceased now his name was charlie tremendous jones and he talked about that you'll be the same person five years from now as you are today, except for a few things, one of which is reading, mm-hmm. uh, the people that you meet, and exposure. In other words, experiences are traveling. Mm-hmm. So if you don't travel, if you don't have new experiences, if you don't meet new people, and you don't read, who you are now is who you will be five years ago. Mm. And as you know, the more you read and the more different things you read, you begin to see the connections with different things and you have those ahas and that does make a difference Mm -hmm. well it's also it's important because the the media that most kids today are exposed to are visual right and it it just doesn't exercise the same 
part of the brain and I try to get that pounded in my kids heads and you know they're inundated with screen time and, and all this which I attempt to limit you know various levels of success there Plus you're talking to an adult who probably has too much screen time too. <laughs> <laughs> well I mean that's just the the nature of the times right. we live in right. but but uh yeah I, I mean a quote that I always like going back to and I try to I remind my kids is what Will Smith you know said he said the this, the really simple approach to life is reading and running. <laughs> reading because it's going to expand your mind to places, and you can go to places that you can't physically go to, mm-hmm. and and learn about the world even if you can't get out and see it. And then running because it challenges you, challenges you in the way that you know you're doing something outside your comfort zone. That voice in your head starts talking and says. You, you can stop anytime. Right. It's okay. And you have to learn to ignore that because that's the same voice that'll get you. It's like, oh, do I really want to take this test? Or do I want to go for this graduate program? Or, you know, do I even want to go to college? Or uh-huh. do I want to take this job that seems really hard, but, you know, could be rewarding? So it's it's those two things, I think, is, is just the fundamentals of living. And, right. and when you can overcome that voice in your head that's telling you to stop or no, or this is going to be uncomfortable and you learn to exercise that muscle and you expand your brain through reading you know you take your place take that's your right. places you can't go otherwise that's right so yeah but to the travel point i think is, is so key. I, I lived out of the country um, for a while and, and dual citizen of grenada and you know so i've actually lived in a different culture and different world as a minority as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that will wake you up to Mm -hmm. a lot of different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And when you hear people criticize things about our local community, it's like, compared to what? Exactly. You know, compared to where? You know, what what exactly, you know, is your level of of comparison and your benchmark? Because I think if you get out and see more of the world and and see other places, then right. then you have a better benchmark. And it also helps you. A friend of mine, Phil Anderson, has co-authored a book, and I can't recall the co-author's name now, called Blind Spots. Mm-hmm. And what you just described helps you with some blind spots mm-hmm. because you have a different context and being a minority in another country. And coming back, you may see things or aware of some things that others don't see just because they're acclimated to the sameness exactly exactly and and back to the reading thing i mean you're they they chose the original book i guess they Uh, continue to so i don't tell them what to read so as a matter of fact just last week i sent the principal uh email to say send me the list so we start for september so it's whatever they choose and And where do they get their inspiration from it's all over the place to be honest with you so the it's uh, the school is grades one through eight and so and it's only two classes. It's small. There are only 17 students this year. Mm-hmm. So it's first through the fourth grade all in one class, and then fifth through eighth grade in another class. And it's it could be from insects uh, to cooking uh, to knives to games. Uh, for the smaller kids, I think the teachers help with those. So, mm-hmm. you know, it could be biographical, historical uh, individuals. But it, it literally um, – it's a wide range in terms of what they love to read. So mm-hmm. I send the list, and they send me the list back and say this is what they want. I order the books, and then I go over and 
I may, as I say, take some donuts or take someone with me, and <laughs> uh, they get interviewed, and we hand out the books, and we go away, and about three weeks later, I say, send me another list, and we go back, and we start over. Well, I'm anxiously waiting my invite right. for, for that. Um, yeah, I mean, w- w- you have had to make such an impact on a lot of kids' lives. I mean, I went one time uh, when my daughter, my youngest, was in second grade, um, just towards the end of the year, and I read James and the Giant Peach to him. And uh, three or four years later, some of the kids are like, when, Mr. Brewer, when are you coming back to, right. to read to us? We've got to finish that book. I'm like, well, you can probably finish that on your own, <laughs> but I'd be glad to come back right. and read. But I just, you know, years had passed, and they never forgot that. Well, part of that, I would think, having not been in a room with you with kids is just how you engage them when you're doing it. Mm-hmm. So I've seen folk read, and it's just boring. <laughs> right. And the kids are just... And you have to make it entertaining and engage them for them to be interested. One of my favorite books, a favorite for me, and I really like to read it, but I've actually purchased it for friends who are adults, is The True Story of the Three Little Pigs. Mm-hmm. And it's told from the Wolf's perspective. <laughs> it's by Alexander T. Wolf. Uh, it's a small book. doesn't take long to read. Uh, but when I read it, they all have parts. Mm-hmm. You know, I have someone who's the wolf. You know, we have three little pigs. There are three people that are pigs. There's a police person at the end. There's a person that's a reporter. Mm-hmm. And so we, they acted out as we're reading it through the entire story. And periodically as we're going through, I'll ask questions. So what happened to the first one? What was wrong with him? What, what was he doing? Well, he, want, he needed some sugar to bake a cake for his grandmother. Mm-hmm. And that's why he went to the pig's house. And he had the sniffles, and he started sneezing, and it blew the house down. And he just couldn't let that poor pig just sit there, so he ate it, right? He was hungry. And so by the time he finished that, they want to do it again because someone else wants to be a part mm-hmm. of it. And so I think for you and what you just described, it's, it's just it's engaging, it's exciting, it gets their interest. And once you have the interest mm-hmm. from that point, Mm-hmm. It's it's easy. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, the I've not I wasn't aware of the the book from the Wolf's perspective, but how beautiful is that to flip the script, so to speak, right. and show kids. I mean, there there a lot of kids. I'm sure were familiar with Three Little Pigs, but they probably never thought to look at it through another's mm-hmm. eyes. The Wolf has a perspective, and he said he was frank. All right, and look and look, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and look how you know relevant that is to our times today, right. and that right. we were fed narratives that that we're told that are is the truth but we we rarely take the time to back away from that and look at it through another's eyes Correct. and i think part of that is just not knowing how another eyes would see things right. and and we so hard to take off the lenses that we're so sure that are the right lenses right and i think i think that that that's a good exercise to I'm going to have to look that book up and share that with my That's hilarious. You you should read it. (laughs) The contrarian point of view from the Three Little Pigs. That's great. Well, tell me about um, some of the successes and challenges you had this summer since we mentioned it, the the Black Theater Festival. I mean, you know, I'm I'm sure you've been asked plenty of times about it, but just from a community glue standpoint so to speak you know. well it's a as you know it's it's a um, it's an outstanding time in the community there's a lot of energy so there's a lot of positive energy here uh, this is the 30th year it's the 16th festival the company's been around for 40 years 
uh, Larry Leon Hamlin, Mr. Martastic, uh, as he was referred mm-hmm. to, uh, started it. He had an idea in 1988 after going to a conference, and he was thinking of ways to sustain black theater uh, nationally and internationally. And initially he wanted to do a conference. He came up with this idea of a festival. And as you know, oftentimes what you need is just one person who believes in you. You have an idea, and if I can get you to believe in this, and you say you will go with me. Uh, for him, it was Dr. Maya Angelou mm-hmm. who agreed to be uh, the, the co-chair mm-hmm. that year. She had some uh, great friends like Ofer Winfrey who came to the first festival and some others that she invited from a play that she was in years ago called The Blacks. Mm-hmm. And so Lou Gossett Jr. and some of those folk came. My wife and I happened to have been out uh, on vacation that first week. Never had a festival before. You don't know what's going on. <laughs> vacation was planned. We came back and read a newspaper that 10,000 people descended here. Uh, 17 companies came. Like, wow. Mm-hmm. I won't miss that again. <laughs> and we haven't since then. So we had, it's upwards of 60,000 people in the community. It's the largest festival that comes into the community. Economic impact is uh, 7.5 to 10 million, uh, and that's before adding in ticket sales. Um, two years ago, there were more than 4,200 room nights here in hotels, and so that means more revenue coming into the city, uh, sales tax, and so forth. People go shopping, they eat, they go to performances. Uh, we had 25 professional companies, uh, four colleges and universities, uh, 125, 130 performances and 20 venues all across the city. Mm-hmm. So it's just a fantastic time. It's great theater. Uh, actors uh, have the opportunity to come and network and also see other performances. Uh, usually they make connections that lead to something else, mm-hmm. someplace else. We have people and bus groups coming from as far away as Wisconsin and Detroit and uh, Philadelphia and Baltimore uh, mm-hmm. to come here and stay. And so it, it's great for the community. Um, it's the largest uh, black theater festival anywhere, period. Uh, it is international. Uh, we had a performance uh, from uh, one actor. She's a big, she's a superstar in South Africa. So she's a soap opera star. There, it's like rolling out the red carpet. Here, folk don't know her. Yeah. Um, so this is her second time, I believe. She was at the last festival as well. Uh, she was also one of the honorees at the gala um, that uh, we presented to her. And when she went back home, um, they literally had a big party for her. They made a cake. They had the National Black Theater Festival logo. Oh, wow. And she had a picture giving her award to her parents who are in their 90s now, thanking them that that was for them, mm-hmm. uh, that, that she received that. So significant impact on the community uh, mm-hmm. culturally. Um, it's fantastic as well because it's, it's exposure, going back to what you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. You're seeing something different. You've been challenged in different ways mm-hmm. uh, with different people coming in, talking about different subject matter. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, we mentioned the limited channels we had growing up, and I, you know, I grew up with different strokes. I met Todd Bridges through the – through mm-hmm. the festival, I met Sherman Helmsley from mm-hmm. from the Jeffersons. Mm-hmm. I mean, all all these childhood stars from me. I, I've seen just on the streets of Winston Salem, and, and they're and, just everyday people. Yep, they're here. They walk around. They have a good time. They sit out and eat, and they talk to folk. And so, while they are stars, many of them, uh, they don't act that way in in person when you see them. Mm-hmm. Just, and they come here. We call this. 
Holy Ground. It's an international celebration and reunion of spirit on black holy ground. Mm-hmm. And that holy ground is this is the place where everyone comes every two years and you re-energize. Yeah. And you make those connections again and you see people. It's like having a big family reunion, if you will, for an entire week. Mm-hmm. Well, I, so just as literacy is to health literacy, I think the arts is to the health Correct. of the community. So that's that's another big impact that 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 and, and you're a big player in that so i know that that's you know another impact that you have on the health of the community so we well it really that. makes a difference you know we we are billed as uh, the city of arts and innovation uh, we have the first arts council here it was founded in 1949 so we have some history um, it really does make an impact we had a performance last year that dealt with alzheimer's and dementia and at the end of that performance, there was a woman who came out, and she was just talking about how great it was. She had her children with her. I want to say they were high school young adults. They saw things in the performance that reminded them of her and was telling her, you act like that, and she was surprised because she hadn't seen it. She wanted to meet the actress. Um, the actress uh, had a mother who was going through this, and she was trying to deal with it. She was married and was breaking up the family. Uh, she couldn't see things that the family could see. The mother was was losing it to a certain extent. And she was so moved by it, and the reason she wanted to talk to the actress is she wanted to let her know that she saw herself and her kids saw her through her performance on stage. Mm-hmm. Now, that's anecdotal. You know, you don't have stats to say how many people it reached. But here's someone that really is moved emotionally from sitting in a theater, watching actors perform and talk about a subject that's near and dear to a, a great many of us in society now. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that just those events help, you know, connect people that and connect them with topics and right. things and and have the potential to make people uncomfortable right. as well. And I think that one of the things and I want to segue into this a little bit, um, and I'm trying to formulate the right way to do it. Uh, uh, you know, this, there's been since, I don't know, nine years now, I've heard the word like safe space and comfort mm-hmm. zones and all this. And if we are coddling our youth as if they can't, we don't want them to be uncomfortable. And we have, the term helicopter parents and all mm-hmm. this stuff. And, and I guess what, you know, you work with the smaller kids in the academy and then, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you go into the college level. You know, what are, is there a continuity there that you're seeing? Is there a, a disconnect or, or is there a cliff that we're falling off of, you know, from challenging kids as youth and then trying to protect them when they get to the time when they're supposed to be the most uncomfortable. In the- yeah. I think whether we challenge them or not to be to become comfortable with being uncomfortable, um, whether, I mean, young, they're very impressionable. So, so you're starting a foundation, hopefully, that will help them navigate later. But I find whether it's young or uh, college age or just getting out of college is that Les Brown, who's a motivational speaker and author, and you may be familiar with, um, tells a story, and he says that everyone is like a blind man standing on a corner waiting for someone to help him get across. In other words, we all need some guidance. And it doesn't matter whether it's a kid or it's an adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, folk are looking for some guidance. 
Uh, they're looking for to talk to someone to say, help me do this, or I'm not sure what I want to do. I've had a couple conversations over the last two weeks with two young men, uh, one of whom was um, had talked to someone. This is how it often happens in the community. They talk to someone, and that someone says, you ought to go see that person. Mm-hmm. Or I would suggest you talk to this person. And that was the nature of the conversation when he called. Uh, I talked to so-and-so, and she said I should give you a call. Like, so why are you calling me? <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm interested in. And she said you might have some experience in that. At the end of that conversation, a lot of it really was just my asking questions. So why do you want to do it? Uh, mm-hmm. So what's your history? He'd been incarcerated for 14 years. He's been out four now. He's working. He's helping those who have been incarcerated who are now out uh, to try to help them, and he has a passion for that. At the end of the conversation, um, and he had a couple of assignments by the time he left. I said, first of all, you ask me, right? So yeah. I'm, I'm going to tell you. He said, well, all I was looking for was some guidance. I just need some help. And he felt like he received some of that at that particular point. So I think one of the common things is just help, mm-hmm. just looking for guidance, looking for feedback, looking for uh, some assistance. Uh, as I told the uh, once the Salem Fellows a couple of weeks ago in their first leader luncheon, uh, to know the road ahead, it's a Chinese proverb, says to know the road ahead, ask someone coming back. Mm-hmm. Said, so I'm coming back. <laughs> You're just getting started. So mm-hmm. if you want to know how to get from here to there, what I'm going to tell you is don't go down Fifth Street beyond <laughs> Spruce because there's a pothole. Right. And so you might want to make a left on Spring Street and then turn right on Fourth and then come back across Broad and then go down. Yeah. <clears throat> Now, you can continue down if you want to, and you're going to get to the point and go, oh, there's a pothole. Yeah. <laughs> I should have listened. I, I could have saved some time. So I think that's, that's some of my experiences have been is just looking for guidance, looking mm-hmm. for help, looking for feedback. Uh, what can I do to improve or how can I get better? And sometimes, uh, as you know, I didn't understand this as a child, um, uh, the things that coaches and parents would do. You know, I don't know if you've had a whooping before or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, I don't my, know if you my parents yes. not including my own exactly. <laughs> and I don't know if you've heard this before, but this hurts me more than it hurts you. <laughs> oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I couldn't embrace that. I couldn't wrap my mind. Now I understand that now. I should have said in addition to mine. Yeah. In addition, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or um, or coach who's very hard on you. The reason he is is or she is because they see something in you beyond what you're doing, and what they're trying to do is push you to get to that point. Mm-hmm and teach you specific things to do so you can realize that potential. Otherwise, they wouldn't take the time to do it. So I I think many of us, and whether you're a child or an adult, are in that, and we can use some coaching from someone. Mm -hmm. And we're at different levels of the continuum, and that coaching looks different, but it's guidance. I, you know, following your social media feeds and stuff, I see, you know, you, you return to your alma mater, Livingston College, mm-hmm. and, and um, what are some of the differences you see today with the students, the culture, all that, the, the, compared to when you went? Because I've seen some of your throwback pictures, and, you know, everyone's <laughs> just so elegant, and, you know, it just seemed like just, you know. Uh, Back in those what we call super fly days. Yeah, super the, fly. The wide collars and lapels and yeah, so forth. Yeah, but y'all rock that. And, yeah. you know, what do you see when you go back today? Do you see the same ethos of, like, uh, you know, growing the culture in positive ways? Or, or do you see, like, lack of vision to 
progress or, you know. It's kind I'm of just, a, a combination of both. Uh, my wife chuckled when you talked about those throwback pictures. I just heard her <laughs> in the other room here. Uh, we had, uh, Livingstone is a small school. There are about 1,100 students. We probably had close to that number when she and I attended. That's where we met in college uh, in 1970. We had a very close class. Uh, we were competitive, not in a way that I'm just trying to be better than you, but we took it seriously, I think, mm -hmm. the majority of people did. And I think you could say that about certain groups now within college classes. Um, how we carried ourselves, and part of that just had to do with how you were brought up mm -hmm. and what you were taught. And so the times today are somewhat different. Uh, the social media influence, uh, the type of music. Uh, we may think that music is crazy, but some folk probably thought some of the music we listened to at that time <laughs> was a little crazy and psychedelic and, you know, wearing bell-bottom pants and, and so forth, uh, probably to our parents and grandparents. Mm, uh, or hot pants. <laughs> it was a little different back at that time as well. So I, I, there's some bright spots now. Uh, with some students that are just doing some outstanding things. I think in terms of social consciousness, it's maybe a little bit different than it was at that time. Back during my time, Sarah and I at Livingstone, you know, it was during the Vietnam War area, uh, uh, era, so mm -hmm. it was a little different. You were conscious of some of those things. But I think for some, for so many now, the social consciousness is at a different level maybe than the majority of students at that time. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's a different group of students that haven't experienced some things that we've experienced. There was a list that came out uh, a few weeks ago, and I think it's Marist College that they focus on this year. And so looking at this class that will be the class of 2023, there are things that they have no idea about. They've always gone through airports and taken their shoes off. Mm -hmm. They don't know anything. They don't know about a telephone with a cord that's attached to the wall. <laughs> or a cell phone that was screwed into your car <laughs> that had a cord on it. Or licking a postage sale. stamp. <laughs> exactly. So that there's so many things that they have no idea about, and it's completely new, and so they have a different frame of reference. So sometimes it's a little challenging just in terms of the work ethic, uh, in terms of um, you, know, you aren't going to do what I did. Uh, I started Intergon two weeks after I graduated from college. So I graduated on May 14th, 1970, and on May 28th, I started there, and I was going to work for a year, and it ended up being 36. Hmm. Not too many are going to work that long in one place, even though the company changed. Uh, so their idea of loyalty, uh, their idea of what it means to network, their idea of what it means to be authentic is quite different than it was then. Uh, their idea of what it means for companies to be socially conscious and engaged and involved uh, their idea of religion and what that means when you say one thing and you do something different. And consequently, you have uh, the highest population now is nuns, N-O-N-E-S, <laughs> because I see something and I hear something else and I don't believe it, so it's mm -hmm. incongruent. So there, there are a lot of bright spots. There are some similarities, and then there are a lot of changes at the same time. Dress is quite different. Mm-hmm. Now, than it was then. So I remember when I started in a gun and even coming out of college, you know, putting on a shirt and tying a suit mm -hmm. and dressing up, that was the order of the day. Yeah. That's quite different now. Mm -hmm. uh, many college campuses, uh, you attend, 
will go on. Um, the dress looks quite different. I've had conversations with a number of folk at times. You know, I walked up to a young man one day. He was walking with a couple of guys, and I just said, uh, so what size pants do you wear? And he looked at me, and he said, whatever size, let's just say 32. Mm-hmm. I said, well, those are probably a little too big for you, aren't they? <laughs> he looked at me. I said, I'm not mad at you. I'm not upset. I'm just saying those are probably a little too. I said, so where are you from? What are you majoring in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, have a good day. And I just moved on. So it was rather than saying, you know, your pants don't need to sag. Mm-hmm. I know your mom and dad have taught you better than that. There was. Those probably a little too large for you, right? So there's some challenges now, even though I think there's some very bright young people. Um, one uh, mentee of mine who's doing an outstanding job, I, I was um, on the board of Winston-Salem State University for eight years, and I chaired it for two and the student body president is also a member of the board. And so one of those uh, individuals, his name is Terrell Stevens, uh, is a mentee. I was chair and he was the president of the student body and we developed a relationship. And that's been 12, 13 years now. He still calls about once a month, usually around midnight. <laughs> uh, he calls at any time, and I've given him that. Anytime you want to call, doesn't matter what time it is, whatever you need to talk about, call. Uh, if he's about to make a move, he'll call. And he doesn't address me, uh, Mr. Austin or Nigel. He calls me Mr. Chairman. Chairman, I had a question for you. I got this dilemma. You know, we have this long conversation. So there's still students like that, mm-hmm. uh, that you develop those relationships with. Um, and you can look back to see where they were and see where they are at this time and feel proud that you've had some little part. You know, it's, it's really just planting seeds and ideas and stepping out of the way and asking questions and helping them to discover who they are and make their own decisions. How has leadership training evolved over the last, say, 10 years? I mean, have, are you still doing the same methodologies and the same concepts? To a certain extent. You know, it's it's – I don't know that the core of it has really changed. I mean, you can Google leadership and you'll see thousands upon thousands of books. There are all types of coaches and different people. Uh, I've often said there's really a nickel's worth of difference between one motivational book and another. It's just packaged differently and it's written Mm -hmm. in a different way and a different style uh, that connects with you maybe that didn't connect with me mm-hmm. and this one connected with someone else uh, but it continues to, hit, to help you some of what has changed has to do with just the change in uh, generations uh, and multiple generations within workforces mm-hmm. and how the community has aged and having millennials and generation z and whatever the new one is now and how do you manage across that for example mm-hmm. and it's quite different so um my father's time and his generation and my grandfather was quite different. Mm-hmm. You go to work at the same place, you do what you're told, you come in this particular place and get the job done and you go home. Yep. It's different now. Uh, you don't necessarily have to be in this place to do the work. I, I thought about the differences in categories of well, personal growth. So there's self-help, mm-hmm. you know, assuming you have a problem you need to fix or work on, and then there's personal growth and then leadership kinds of things. And all of those kind of mean the same thing to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's all related to to one another. Do you see how much is there, how much of personal growth 
strategies are in in the leadership trainings that you do or is it just really about how to be a leader amongst people or is it how to grow inside to me they're connected i don't think you can do one without the other Uh, effectively there there are some for example while at intergon um, there was a period of time and, and everyone or companies have mission statements and core values Hey, you walk into a building, and our mission is to do X. Mm-hmm. And we believe in integrity and communication, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if you don't walk the talk, employees know those are just words on it. So you really have to make it come to life. And part of making it come to life is being authentic and understanding who you are. Um, and as uh, a lot of leadership training and others talk about is emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. And that means being aware. And after you've been aware, how do you manage that? What kind of changes? But you have to know something about yourself, uh, about your surrounding. What does that mean? Now, how do you manage it different? Mm-hmm. And all of that is a part of leadership. Uh, to me, it isn't any different in coaching. Coaching is about leadership. Uh, so it's uh, how I communicate with you may be different than how I communicate with someone else who's on the team. So my coach at Reynolds High School, who was Doug Crater, who's now deceased, may get in your face and cuss you out, right? (laughs) One style. (laughs) But he may talk to someone else differently because that person is going to respond in a different way and can't take that where you can. And so you have to recognize different ways in which uh, to communicate, uh, to push people, uh, to be aware, to encourage them, when to be more direct, when to be less direct, what style works best to get things done. Now, those who I think avoid that, can be successful and make a lot of money, but if that's against what you believe the values are, mm-hmm. and what should happen is you don't get to continue to do that. And mm-hmm. so some of that, um, t- to your point again, um, it's connect- it is personal growth and understanding that and how do you apply that in terms of leading others to get things done. Yeah. So leadership is really about getting things done through other people. Mm-hmm. But that's also about personal growth because how do you go about doing it? Mm -hmm. Dale Carnegie is a part of that. That's part of I'll be starting another uh, class in a couple of weeks, and that's part of uh, helping people with their interpersonal skills, Mm -hmm. how you talk. Interpersonal skills is also about your body language, so it isn't just the words that you say. Uh, So if your body language and your tone of voice and your words don't match, people believe very little based on what they hear you say. Mm-hmm. Because I'm looking at your body language, and your body language does not go along with the words that came out of your mouth. <laughs> That's inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're the boss and you can tell me what to do doesn't mean you've lost someone mm-hmm. at some point in time. And when things can get better someplace else or they can move on, they will, and they'll leave you. So it, to me, it's about your personal growth uh, continuing to do that, being aware um, as a part of your leading other people at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you've said the word authenticity a couple times, and I think that's so important. And especially, you know, we, we get, I'm seeing since I've been in uh, healthcare, the uh, directional change towards like motivational interviewing because there's solving the obesity epidemic and the addiction epidemic and things like that. Is it just a hard drill sergeant yelling at you, you got to stop doing that because we know that that won't work. So there's a, it has been a sea change, I think, towards 
understanding people and and bias proofing your communication skills and and uh, reaching people at an authentic level, you know, bringing back the humanity in that. And I think in healthcare is really where it really matters. And I've said before that, you know, I walk through the halls of this place and there's a lot of people here that would rather not be here. They're here for certain situational circumstances that, that got them here. And, and what I've noticed is, is the culture that's uh, evolved here and grown here is, has really created a place where people are their authentic selves and love comes flying into this place like I've never seen anywhere you know I, I look at Twitter sometimes I'm like oh my god we're in the brink of civil war you know and then I walk through the halls here I'm like there's a lot of love here I mean everyone you know and, and I think that's just all about the authenticity of, of meeting people where they are and sharing whatever that they need from you at that time and and this is a it's a wonderful place for that because it gives me a lot of hope and encouragement about the future and and just seeing people in that situation and and i you know i'm trying to grow from that too and and understand you know how i can uh, inspire my own kids to be that way and 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 them to see you know when people are in need and not to just give to them but find out what they need right. to have so right. that they can right. and that's part of the learning process you know there's a a latin term exemplum doce and it means the example teaches and it is the only thing that does mm-hmm. i mean part of teaching is just being an example you don't often have to use words mm-hmm. it's just do it and if they see that then they know that's something important to your point about uh, health care and and, and the challenges, there are two examples for me personally that have really made a difference. And again, it's, it's how it's communicated and how the person um, encourages you or inspires you or scares you to death, right? <laughs> uh, several years ago, I was diagnosed with sleep apnea. Had some problems with breathing, went to your nose and throat doctor, gave me some medicine, Helped a little bit, then it didn't, and for whatever reason, they said, I think y'all have a sleep test. Well, come to find out, I was not sleeping well at all, very little during the course of the night. Um, stopped breathing several times. Well, my wife had told me that before. She mm-hmm. would notice I wasn't breathing, she would just watch me, and then I would start again. I, I didn't know this. Had the sleep test, and so uh, we told me I had sleep apnea, you need to use a CPAP. And for those who don't know what a CPAP is, you know, it's a machine. You put a mask over your face, it blows air in, it opens up your air passages because what happens is your sort of tongue goes back, it closes it off, and as you know, if you lose oxygen, you die. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> or you can. Uh, Reggie White, who played for the Panthers, uh, supposedly died from as a result of sleep apnea. But the point is, after I had the test, I got the machine, he told me what I need to do. Use it for a week, come back. So they have a way of knowing whether you use it or not, mm-hmm. et cetera. To me, it was something to get used to. Now, I have this air coming in. It felt like I was hard to breathe or have to wear this thing every night. I didn't really notice a big difference. And so I sat in the doctor's office just like we're talking right now for the follow-up. And I said, so what would happen if I decide not to do this? Because in my mind, I'm thinking... I don't really feel any different. I have to put this machine on every night. He just looked at me and said, you'll die. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. <laughs> that <laughs> no, was it. Enough said. Right. He, you know, he didn't scream. He didn't mm-hmm. go through all of this. He just said, you'll die. Mm-hmm. Got the message. Yeah. 
and that's been over 10 years ago. Red every night makes a tremendous difference. Mm-hmm. Two years ago, I was diagnosed with diabetes, and so it's, it's a family history of it, and there are a number of things that contribute to it, being overweight. Um, there's some things in terms of the circulatory system, so high blood pressure, overweight, and those things ran in the family. Mm-hmm. I knew eventually it was coming, <laughs> but I was eating like it was... Yeah. <laughs> I'm not worrying about tomorrow. You know, have a good time now. You may, on my Instagram page, say, well, you're still doing that, Nigel. Well, I'm starting to see more fruit and vegetables. Uh, well, I do. I'm, I mix it up some now. You know, people think, well, what's wrong with you? That's, that's a little different. But I knew something was wrong. Went to the doctor. And I was pretty sure that was it. Blood sugar was extremely high. I think it was 396. My doctor looked at me and said, well, I was thinking about sending you immediately to the emergency room for ICU, and I'm thinking, well, why would you be doing that? I'm here with you. I don't feel bad. I understand. And he explained it, but he said, uh, there's this doctor, and I can't recall her name now, and she teaches other doctors uh, how to deal with diabetes. Mm-hmm. So she's the authority on it. So I called her. She said she could see. He sent me directly to her. Mm-hmm. She's probably this tall. This oh, tall, she'll be on the podcast this afternoon. This tall is... Uh, <laughs> I know who you're talking about. I sat down in the office... And she went over a few things with me. Uh, she took out the machine to check the blood sugar, told me how to use it. And she said, here's what you do. Now you do it. So I did it. Okay, stick yourself. Check it. Okay. So I want you to do this three times a day. <laughs> First thing in the morning, you're fasting blood sugar. Whether it's lunch or dinner, do it right before you eat and two hours after. And as I'm going out, she said, and I want you to call me every day. Like, every day? And I'm thinking to myself, are you serious? She says, yes, call me every day. So I called her every day. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you know that she's a petite woman. She's not five feet tall. I'm a big man, over 6'2". I said, yes, and every day I would call her. Sometimes she would call me back. It may be 10 o'clock. She didn't always call back, but I had to call her every day and give her a report mm-hmm. of how well I was doing. That went on, I'm going to say, for at least two or three months every day. You don't see that. My, now, my wife was like, you know, I'm really impressed with that. Mm-hmm. She demanded accountability. And some days she would call back and, okay, you're doing well. Well, mm-hmm. how are you doing? So after a certain point, she said, okay, you don't have to call me anymore. And then when I didn't call her, the next time I went back, so why haven't you called me? I was like, please, <laughs> you told me I didn't have to. But I think that's an example of just the, the relationship. One was very direct. Um, you'll die. It's just that simple. I, I think you get that message. Mm-hmm. The other was, here's some accountability. Mm-hmm. Here's what you need to do. Every day I want you to call me until I tell you not to. And that changed things. I understood the seriousness of it. I did what I was supposed to do. I changed my eating habits. I called her every day. Mm-hmm. And that's made a difference in terms of where I was at that point and how things changed in terms of losing weight. It really wasn't a diet. It was just a lifestyle change and cutting certain things out. Mm-hmm. And being on a certain amount of medication that then was reduced because things improved. Yeah. I noticed on your uh, LinkedIn uh experience you'd been to the army war college can you share some experience you had there and what did that teach you and what did you learn about that that experience that was a powerful experience so one of your um, 
previous guest, Smitty, mm-hmm. Jeff Smith, is a person who recommended that I go and um, wrote a letter uh, to support me going, and I applied for it and was accepted to it. So it's a small class. Um, I think we had maybe between 10 to 13 people to attend. <clears throat> it's absolutely outstanding to be around people who um, – it's like you're living in another country, and as you said, you were a minority, and you gained just different experience and understanding, and you came back and you went, wow. You might have had a certain impression of the place when you went or the people, and then you went and you went, wow. It was a wow experience. Uh, one, to look at men and women who are bright, who are brilliant, who are thinking about issues that we aren't even thinking about or talking about. I mean, they're so far ahead of where we are thinking about what we see, and it's what we don't see and don't know that they're dealing with every day. So it was every day of um, sitting in a room around a table with someone coming in talking about issues or challenges, uh, how they're dealing with some of those things, the kind of thinking that goes into it, uh, what helps you in terms of being a leader, and you just sort of shake your head and you know, you contribute something to it. I don't know if you have been and or listeners where you thought you knew something mm-hmm. and then you found out you didn't know as much as you thought you knew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you listen to it and you think, well, what I need to do right now is just stop talking, mm-hmm. ask a few questions and listen. So it was, it was just an absolutely powerful experience of learning, um, of the exposure to different way of thinking, uh, to what they have gone through to get to that particular point, to the challenges we have as a country and internationally, to how they're dealing with it, to the experiences that they've had around the globe and how they bring that to bear. So mm-hmm. it, it was, um, uh, Jeff had gone through it several years uh, prior, thought it was something I would be interested in. And mm-hmm. since that time, I've mentioned to someone else who's also gone. So it, it's really... Uh, for anyone who has the opportunity to do it, it's one week, uh, but it's absolutely uh, impactful. You were interim director of social services just mm-hmm. for a while, and I know that that's got to be a tough place to be. Um, my uh, In a previous life, I was married to a woman who was in child protective services, mm-hmm. so when I heard the stories on the ground, I mean, she'd come home crying every day, and mm-hmm. just, you know, it was hard to leave that at the office. Mm-hmm. Um um, while you were there or since you've been there, what have you seen change, um, focusing on the positives, I guess? I mean, you know, we could talk about horror stories all day about mm-hmm. social services, but, you know, what are some gains that you've seen since you were there and, and maybe describe a little bit about the challenges you did have when you, when you were there for your, your term? So part of my, and I was only there for a three month period of time. So it was in between, uh, Joe Raymond, who was the director. I also had uh, served on the Department of Social Services board for six years and chaired it for five years and was there when Joe was hired. And so Joe had just left uh, to take another position. And they were in the process of looking for someone else, and I was the interim. So part of my coming in, knowing it was interim, not going to be there for a long time, I was just focusing on a few things, and they were fundamental to me, and that is uh, being transparent, uh, accountability, uh, customer service. The people that come in here deserve uh, to be treated like human beings, mm-hmm. and they should get excellent customer service. That means returning phone calls. That means greeting people nicely. <clears throat> So part of the part of my time being there really was just uh, communicating 
to let people know what's going on, uh, to listen, to find out uh, what was happening. For example, one of the things I did was um, every week we'd have a cross-section of 12 people and we'd pick them randomly and they would come in and we'd sit in a room like this and I would tell them they can ask whatever they want to ask. And there's no retribution, nothing's going to happen. Whatever question you have or whatever you'd like to share. If there was something that was disturbing, as a matter of fact, one person brought up something one day and I was looked at and told her, you aren't telling me the truth. Mm-hmm. I said, I am. I said, well, here's the deal. I'm not going to take your monkey for you. So if you're going to bring me a problem or an issue, you have to tell me who, what, when, and where. If you can't tell me that, I can't deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so finally she gave in and said, well, this is the situation. This is the person. I said, give me a number. And so I called her right where everyone's in the room. And sure enough, there was a recording that said what she said. I said, okay. So by the end of the day, we had that straight. Mm-hmm. And I sent that back out to folks to say that's been resolved. Mm-hmm. Now, if anything happens to you, all you need to do is let me know. We'll take care of that so you don't mm-hmm. have to be afraid. So part of it was just communicating with folk, uh, connecting with them, uh, letting them know that their voice made a difference, uh, that they were important. I would spend a lot of time every day coming in, just going around, speaking, mm-hmm. talking to folks, sit down, have a conversation for a moment. And so that, that took root uh, to a certain extent. There still are challenges and always will be. Uh, I don't know if you've had the current director on your show. He'd be outstanding as well, Victor Isler, okay. who's the um, current director. Uh, Victor, matter of fact, while I was interim, came. he was in the Department of Social Services previously and moved to Durham. And Joe had hired him back in uh, over um, family child protective services and a number of other areas and is now the director. Uh, Some outstanding things are happening. Um, uh, The spirit in the place, uh, representing in the community so that people know what's going on, uh, making some changes in how people access what they need, uh, the customer service, uh, the awareness within the community about what's going on and some of the challenges and what needs to be done. So it's, I would say, quite a different place in the past year since he's been in that role. Uh, than it was five years ago or maybe six years ago when I was there as an interim. Mm -hmm. There always would be challenges, as you know, but it's a different place. So some of the things, you know, when you talked about social determinants and economic determinants, uh, whether it's access or lack of access, whether it's not having enough money, um, uh, I'm a softie. And mm-hmm. I've told people on more than one occasion, if I were not married to Sarah, I probably wouldn't have anything because I'd give it <laughs> give all it away. away. And, and she and I laugh about that as well. She's probably <laughs> nodding her head now. But I remember one day a person came in, and it was one of those situations where at the end of it, what I wanted to do was give her some money. Now, I know that you can't do that because there are so many people in that same situation, and mm-hmm. you just don't have enough to do it. But for her, for that day, mm-hmm. and the fact that we couldn't help her that day because of a number of reasons, I couldn't in good conscience walk out of there without doing something for her mm-hmm. to help her to solve that problem that day. Mm-hmm. Now, when I walked out, I knew, okay, you can't keep doing this. Not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Because what happens when the next person comes and the next person comes? So when you, when you see that on the ground level and you experience it, going back to your point about um, a previous life and mm-hmm. bringing that home, uh, it sticks with you. Mm-hmm. It moves you. So 
we're in a different place now, and I think the agency is in a different place in terms of what it's doing and how it's doing it. And at the same time, there's still challenges. Mm-hmm. There's enough money to go around, uh, budgeting, uh, the political aspect of it, uh, mm-hmm. Medicaid, uh, and not expanding it or not wherever people may fall on that spectrum and, and the impact that that has and what does that yeah. do to the health of the community. There's a uh, one of my favorite books, I have a lot of favorite books, <laughs> as you probably know, is Fierce Conversations, which is by uh, Susan Scott. And in it, she talks about the people of New Guinea. And one of their words is Mokita. And a Mokita is that which we know that we don't talk about. Mm. And the point is, is that the more things you know that you don't talk about, the more of those you have, the more unhealthy your community is. Mm-hmm. And so what we should be doing more of is talking about the things that we know. In other words, the elephant in the room Mm -hmm. so that we can address them versus I know about it, but I'm not going to tell Andy. And that just makes us all unhealthy. And so some of our disease comes from just not addressing or talking about what we know. We know certain things make a difference. We Mm -hmm. know that if we feed children before they go to school, they're going to perform better. Right. If you're hungry, it's hard to get your attention. Absolutely. We know that the higher the education of the mother, the mother, the better it's going to be in impact for children. We know that if there are books and magazines in the home, and they start reading earlier before five, the better they're going to be able to do. We know that if by third grade they haven't mastered some of those things, by the time they're 18, they're going to be in another place that we're paying more money than we're paying now. I mean, those are some things that we know mm-hmm. for sure. Yet some of those things we still aren't addressing, and so we have this birth the pipeline to prison. Yeah, because at third grade we can look at the achievement, and you can almost predict where some of them will be. I mean, that, yeah. that obviously it doesn't happen for all. So part of the health of our community is identifying those mosquitoes and then having conversations about them in a way that we can actually do something. And I think one of the the beauty for us as a former boss of mine, John Beatty, who was uh, chief HR officer at uh, Intergon GMAC years ago, mentioned after he went through leadership once in Salem is that we're in really a big town. So we have a community that's a size where you could actually see some impact and make a difference. Unlike a you know, Los Angeles or New York City, some of those places mm-hmm. that are so huge and have so many issues to deal with yeah, a lot more complex we live in a place that where you can actually see some of this change yeah no that's good that's good so um what are you most excited about for the future very good question what am i most excited about uh, i'm excited about relationships uh, about uh, meeting new people about maybe sharing something with someone that might be of some assistance to them uh, about uh, giving credit to those who've helped me. You know, I'm here, sitting here, talking to you because of some things that happened a long time ago that you know nothing about, about people who've done things for me. I, I often say that we all drink from a well that we didn't dig. And so I'm, I'm excited to share some of those stories and things that have happened and how I arrived here as an example of what you may have to look forward to. Mm-hmm. Uh, there there are people who are doing things for you now that you don't know about. They may be praying for you. They may be putting in a good word for you with someone. 
and I've had that to happen to me, and I found out about it as an adult, and it has just blown my mind. And so um, I'm excited that there is hope when and if we sit down and actually have conversations with each other authentically, whether we agree or disagree, and find something that's common that we can work on so that we can move together. If we, if we can do that, if we can just if we can have the conversation, so much of I don't know if you experience this that happens within our community. At times, uh, we want to avoid certain things or not talk about it. Or when the race issue comes up, well, that was a long time ago and it's not now. Or whether you're privileged or not, and whether you're black or white, you can be privileged. How your privilege uh, causes blind spots that you can't see. Therefore, your, your peripheral vision is not as good as mine might be for obvious reasons, so you don't see this. And therefore, you don't agree or you don't come across on this side of town. Therefore, you don't know about this experience. <coughs> or in East Winston, as an example, there's only one grocery store. Mm-hmm. There's something wrong with that picture. I live off of Robin Hood Road, and within a five-mile radius, I can count six or seven major grocery stores. Mm-hmm. And East Winston, there's one. There's something wrong with that picture. Yeah. Now, there are a lot of reasons people give for that. But the folk in East Winston eat. Mm-hmm. They cook. They do the same kinds of things. So why don't we have it? Those are the kinds of conversations to have to begin. And it's also about uh, inclusion and bringing folk in versus telling them what's good for them. Mm-hmm. It's how do you engage them in that process. So that, that gives me some hope. I'm challenged at the same time. There are times when I'm frustrated and irritated, <laughs> as you can see by my social media feed at times. So if I'm listening <laughs> to something, I have a tendency to put that down and put it down again. But I'm, I'm hopeful at the same time. Well, great. Well, I think sharing and giving, uh, are you're a great example of that. And I think the more we do that and the more we uncover the Mokita that we can have those conversations we can be authentic with each other and and grow as a community and the health for for all of us in there so nigel austin i appreciate you coming today i'm so excited we got to do this and this is the day this is the day all that's right. exactly right well, that picture's been posted this morning already so um, <laughs> thank you for reaching out uh, that's part of the process as well you know relationships to me are a function of time and contact so the more contact you have over time it's not a matter of if, it's when you have a relationship, and the quality of it depends on what you do in between. So uh, I appreciate you reaching out and extending the offer and inviting me to come over, and uh, thank well, you very much. Well, and I'm going to return the favor with your book club, yes. so I, I'll look forward I'll to this invitation. List. All right, thanks again, Nigel. Thank you.